Right. Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And we're going to be continuing our series in the book of James. Won't preach with my mass on. Um, as Scott mentioned, there is um, on the back of your bulletin a QR code for prayer. And also there's a prayer jar where you can put your prayers in. And, um, and we can also uh, use that as a means for prayer. We're a praying church. And um, the elders, as we met uh, yesterday to um, pray through uh, issues of vision and mission, we'll be sharing with you some of those things um, in the near future. One of the things that, that we did was we spent time in prayer. And, and I think that's important. Everything we do, we need to spend time in prayer, asking the Lord for his wisdom. Um, and, and we need it. We need it desperately. Uh, we need God's wisdom at all times. Um, let's look at this passage, James chapter 2, verse 1, down to uh, verse number 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who, fears the fine who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit there in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges and evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he, he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are, not, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you, are, you were called? If you already fulfill the law, royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. And the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace toward us. Lord, grace, that's your orientation toward us. Grace and love and mercy. As your word says, that in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. That in Christ we have been justified by faith and we have peace with you. 
Thank you that you love us deeply. Thank you that you love all of your creation deeply. Thank you that when you look at us, you don't look at us with scorn or shame or disappointment, but you have the eyes of love. Oh God, what a comfort in that. The world is not like that. So many look at one another with shame and disappointment and disdain and anger. And yet here we are as your people before you, clothed with the righteousness of Christ and how you love and accept us. May that same love and acceptance be in us as we live out the gospel in our homes and in our communities. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we talked about how we are at a part in James where he starts preaching and he starts meddling. In other words, he starts getting involved in our lives. He starts applying the gospel specifically to our lives. And one of the ways he began to do that is by talking about sin that was pressing in the lives of God's people, and that was the sin of anger. That's why he begins by saying the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. That was a pressing issue because of all the slave rebellions, because of all the uprisings. James was saying that, look, you cannot use the anger of man to work the righteousness of God. Because that was a pressing issue in their time. Now, James moves from an issue that was pressing to an issue that was the most prevalent, the issue that was the most pervasive, and that was the sin of partiality. Now look, in our day, when we think of the sin of partiality, we think of racism. But I'm here to tell you that racism is only a subset of the sin of partiality. Just like how in this text, James isn't talking about issues of race. He's talking about issues of classism between rich and poor. The issue of classism is a subset of the sin of partiality. And see, it's so important from the very beginning that we define what partiality is because he's talking about the sin of partiality. Now, what is the sin of partiality? It's interesting to me that the sin of partiality, actually, the word used for partiality is a word that they had to coin specifically. Because in the Old Testament, the word is so difficult even to translate from Hebrew to Greek. And so the word that they use for partiality, just think about it with me. When you think of partiality, think about the word face. Face or receiving face. That's because in the ancient Near East, if you had a power dynamic between the higher class and the lower class, when the lower class came to the higher class, what they would do is they would put their face down and walk up to them as a sign of submission. And the way they knew they were received, the way they knew that they were accepted by this person of higher class is they would lift up the person's face to their face. That was a sign that they were accepted. That was a sign to say that they were showing them favor. You know, if you read through the Bible, the most, the, the most vivid and clear example of this was in the story of Jacob and Esau. If you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, 
In fact, the whole story is a story of fascism. We don't have time to go into it. But if you have some time and you'd like to look, look at all the times faces play prominent in that story. For the purposes of our time together today, I'll just give you one. Remember, after Jacob flees from the face of Esau, he spends 20 years away from him. And the Bible says when he comes back, he, he puts all of the children and, and so forth from the other wives in front. And he puts cattle and so forth in front of him. And as he's coming towards Esau, what is he doing? The Bible says he's bowing down his face as a sign of submission to Esau. And he's saying, my Lord, my Lord, it's so, it's so good to see you. And he has his face down. And Esau immediately runs up to him and says, brother, brother. And he lifts up his face. He lifts up his face to meet his face. And what does Jacob say to Esau? He says, Esau, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. He saw the face of God. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying because Esau sees the image of God in him, because Esau sees what God has done in his life, he sees a fellow image bearer, and therefore, he doesn't regard his face. Actually, the Bible is saying in that moment that he is bestowing upon him honor. He's bestowing upon him a grace. And so in this context, the sin of partiality is when we don't regard the face of others with the same honor and respect as God does. Remember in the Bible, it says God is no respecter of persons. It literally means God is no respecter of faces. He doesn't regard one face over the other. God loves all faces the same. Why? Because all of our faces are created in the image of God. It's talking about the doctrine of the Imago Dei. The fact that God looks upon everyone equally, regardless of their education, regardless of their gender, regardless of where they came from, because he made them all. And in that moment, Esau was being the face of God to Jacob because he's regarding him as a loved brother in Christ, more so than his natural brother. We commit the sin of partiality because we look at people not in, as God image bearers, but in our image. We create people in our own. There's a certain kind of people we like. And if we don't see that image in other people, then we don't like them. That's the sin of partiality. Instead of looking at everyone as being in the image of God, we have an image of our preferred person. And it could be based on all sorts of things. In our, in our society, it's based on race. But it could also be that you, in your mind, you like people who are wealthy. Or you like people who are educated. Or you like people who have this particular ideology or that particular ideology. And so you favor those people. Because that's the image you have that everyone should be just like the person you have in your head. But the Bible says no. 
You should not have a preconceived person in your head that you favor over others. Because God does not regard faces. And so then, what causes us to be partial? What what causes the sin of partiality? James gives two reasons in terms of what causes the, um, the, the sin of partiality. Two root causes, and then he gives one solution. Let's look at these two root causes. The first root cause that James says that causes the sin of partiality is our culture, is our culture. Notice with me in verse number one and two, James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, go in this good place and the other, go in that place or sit over there, you've judged and made distinctions. Notice that word, your assembly. What is he talking about there? He's talking about a house church. He's talking about a house church. Now, from a cultural dynamic, there are two cultures happening within the house church. One is the natural culture of their time, and the other one is the Christian culture. Now, hear me. If you, the only person, the only person who had a house big enough to have a house church in was the wealthy. And that person was the person who would decide where this person sat and where that person sat. So this was a wealthy Christian. And there were cultural dynamics at play that were competing with one another. The first cultural dynamic is this, the cultural dynamic of hospitality. Do you know that in the ancient Near East, they were known for their hospitality? In Eastern cultures, they were known for hospitality. Read the story of Lot and Sodom. Lot was willing to give up his own virgin daughters so he could protect the people that came into him who were his guests. He was showing hospitality, hospitality to them. I'll never forget, I went to, um, I went to Philadelphia to take a, a New Testament course at Westminster East, Westminster Theological Seminary. And while I was there, I befriended uh, a couple, an immigrant couple, who was from um, an Eastern culture. I think they were from the Middle East. And me and my friend, um, we co- he knew them better than I, um, than I did, but they invited us to their home. And I, I found out when I arrived, I was their honored guest. And when I walked in, it was incredible. I mean, they treated me like a king. I mean, they, they had this chair that I sat in. And, and they brought uh, warming towels for my hand. And they put out this tremendous spread. I couldn't believe all the food that they gave me. And, and they told their children, no, 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 no. The guests ate first. And so I, I get to eat my food first. And I told him, I was like, no, 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 your children can eat. He was like, not so in our culture, right? But he showed me this great hospitality. And, and what blew me away is after I left... After I left, the man, the young man who was with me said, Dennis, do you realize that he took his last paycheck to buy all of those things just for you? I couldn't believe it. That he would honor me like that. Because the, the, 
loving hospitality was the highest ideal for them. It was deeply rooted. So if anybody came into their home, they would treat them well. But there was another cultural practice that ran even deeper than hospitality. And that cultural practice was their caste system, the system between rich and poor. Because as deep as their desire was to show hospitality, what ran even deeper was this caste system that was pervasive in their society. Both are displayed here in this text. That was at the root of what James was dealing with. James is saying both cultures are rooted in them. Yes, they they had wonderful hospitality, but at the same time, they struggled with a caste system that manifested this sin of partiality. I, I, uh, when I was in Pensacola, I befriended a man by the name of Dr. Franklin. It wasn't until much later I found out that he actually had a PhD in cultural psychology. And every time I met with Dr. Franklin and we began to talk about society, he said, Dennis, never forget this. Your culture is deeply embedded in you. Your culture is deeply embedded in you. And he said that there are layers to your culture. See, you might be asking the question, how can a society who has this rich, deep, and meaningful uh, practice of welcoming uh, people into their home and showing hospitality at the same time can be so committed to a caste system? You're probably wondering that. Do you understand the same thing is true of us? When I was in the Bahamas, it amazed me. Everybody talked about uh, Bahamians and their hospitality. But what was remarkable is that we were so inhospitable towards Haitians. And that inhospitable, uh, being inhospitable towards Haitians was embedded in us to the point where being called a Haitian was like a byword. Every culture has that, even in the United States. Think about the way that we spend so much money uh, trying to help people get educated. Think about how we talk about how all of us are created equal, but yet we prize the educated over the uneducated. And we favor the educated over the uneducated, regardless of how wise they are. Think about, in our society, how we favor those who have looks. Study after study shows that if you're tall, if you're thin, and if you have a face that our culture thinks is beautiful, those people get paid far more than someone who doesn't conform to those looks. That's deeply embedded in us. Or what about when it comes to issues of status and wealth? And what's interesting to me is that these things are held regardless of the character of the individual. 
As long as you're beautiful, it doesn't matter your character, you will make it in America. Why? Because we value beauty over character. Notice I haven't even gotten to the issue of race. I don't have to. That's like low-hanging fruit. The sin of racism runs deep in our society. It's ingrained in us. And we as God's people have to know and understand that. And now the sin of politics, political preferences are becoming ingrained in us to where our churches are divided in red and blue, Democrat and Republican. And people are preference based on their ideology. But the gospel is supposed to provide a new culture for the church. Notice at the beginning of James 2, James says, my brothers. What is James saying when he uses the term my brothers? He's, calling about, he's talking about a Christian community shaped by um, this culture or new practice in which we are seen as a family. Now, there's some of us inside here that actually have siblings that go to CVBC. There are many of us inside here who are connected by blood. But do you understand that if you're in the church, you're connected through the blood of Jesus Christ? This is a deep-rooted issue. That's why, that's what James is trying to communicate to them. That there are practices and cultures within the church that's supposed to transcend anything that would divide us. That's why when we take communion, we talk about us eating and drinking communion as one body, not separate peoples. When we came into worship today, we're worshiping as one body. We, we sing the same songs. We read the same liturgy. We're connected in Christ, regardless of our ideology or how we look or where we come from. We're bonded together by one Lord one faith, one baptism. That's the community of believers. But the church, but the people that James is talking to has lost sight of that. Now, not only was the sin cultural and deeply ingrained, but the sin was also deeply psychological. In other words, it was embedded in their minds. You say, Pastor, well, how you know this? Well, well, look at the passage. Remember again. The host who is making these distinctions is a Christian. It's, it, it's their house. They're opening up their house to everyone. And as the practice was, when, when somebody came into your home, at least in their culture, when someone came to their home, other wealthy people, even though they allowed poor people to come into their home, they made distinctions. If you were wealthy and you had purple clothes on, which was, um, you know, the purple dye, hard uh, to define and to make. And so if you had a purple clothes on, a, a, a clothes that was purple, that was a sign that you were wealthy. They get to go at the head of the table in preferential places. They, if you had a gold ring on, the same thing. But if not, you were placed over to the side. And so notice how this cultural sin that they had grown up with had so impacted their mind. First of all, notice in verse number three. 
James says, as they come in, the poor and the rich, they paid attention to, what, to the one who wears the fine clothing. The word pay attention there means to show special respect for. Literally means to guard the faces of the people who were there. That's what they did. And when they saw the poor coming in with clothes that were sweaty and dirty and potentially had animal feces on it because they were working in the fields, they pushed them to the side. They regarded their faces. Notice also in verse number four, it said that they made distinctions among them. Literally, they separated them out in their minds. Or what about, again, in verse number four, they said, and and become judges with evil thoughts. In other words, they made, this is a legal term, meaning they made a judgment without a defense. Without a defense. Why? Because the sin that they were were committing was so deeply ingrained in them culturally that it impacted the way they treated others. Now hear me today. This was a personal issue for James. If you notice, this section on partiality is one of the longest sections in the book of James. He spends the most time on it than he does any other section in terms of word count. And you might wonder, and I wondered, why did he spend so much time on this? Because this was personal for James. How was it, how was it personal for James? James um, was one of the primary people in Jerusalem who was shepherding the Gentiles in Jerusalem. He was discipling them. And when persecution came, James had to send these Gentiles out to neighboring areas. And he sent a group of Gentiles from um, Jerusalem to Antioch to be discipled by uh, Peter and Barnabas. And it was his intent to have these Gentile Christians be discipled by these two giants in the faith. And so they go to Antioch, they meet Peter and Barnabas, and they sit down for a meal. And all of a sudden, the Judaizers come in. And the Bible said immediately what happened. You can read it in Galatians 2. They separated from these Gentile Christians. Peter and James separated from the Gentile Christians. Now hear me today, consider who who we're talking about here. We're talking about Peter. Peter who walked on water. Peter who was always packing heat. We're talking about Peter who stood up in Acts and preached boldly about Christ. We're talking about Barnabas who was called the son of constellation. That's the people that we're talking about. And even them, As mature of a Christian as they are, they were no match for their cultural prejudices. Because immediately Judaizers came, they fleed. Beloved, I think we need to earnestly think about how our cultural prejudices are deeply ingrained in us. You know, I read a statistic recently that in the 1970s, Within a given day, each one of us saw about 500 ads. In our day, it's up to 5,000. 5,000 ads you see per day. 
They say that by the time you turn 18, you would have seen 25 million ads. By the time you hit 36, you would have seen 50 million ads. And on and on and on. Now, if you think that seeing all those ads and hearing all those things hasn't impacted your heart and mind, then you're out to lunch. If you think growing up in a culture in which daily, to some degree or another, you're confronted with certain ideologies, putting down immigrants or people of color or raising up the wealthy and the good-looking and the privileged, and that has no impact on your heart and mind, you're naive. You're naive. Of course it does. All of us it does. How can it not? Why do you think you're wearing the clothes that you're wearing? Why do you think you pursue the jobs that you pursue? Why do you think that you think about going on vacation here and not there? Because all of those things are deeply embedded in us. And they impact the way we treat others, and they impact the things that we do. Now the question is, how do we address this? How do we deal with this? Well, James tells us clearly in this passage that the way we deal with this is by the gospel. It's by the gospel. Because what does the gospel do? The gospel promises to renew our minds. What does Paul say in, in Romans 12? Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, do not allow yourself to be conformed by the world. In fact, one translation of the word um, partiality says this, don't let public op um, opinion influence how you live. So that's what Paul is saying. Do not be conformed by what your culture has told you and taught you. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does the renewing of your mind happen? Well, it happens through the lens of the gospel. Now, real quick, I, I don't have the time to show you every aspect that James talks about in terms of renewing your mind in the gospel, so I'll only give you a few. Here's how James tells them to renew their mind in the gospel. Look at verse number one. It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus. And he adds this bit, the Lord of glory. That is so powerful. What does it mean to hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? Well, it means this. Think about every time in the Bible you see the glory of God appearing to people what happens. Well, their lives are changed. Every time, in fact, look at Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, when God, then the glory of God appears to Isaiah, it absolutely changes Isaiah. And what, what is he saying? He's saying this, that as you and I live out the implications of the gospel in our life, people will see the glory of God on our faces. Just like how Jesus, um, just like how Moses had the glory of God on his face when he came out of the presence of the Lord. 
In fact, in the ironic blessing, it says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. Well, what is that saying? It means that when people look at us, they need to see Jesus. They need to see the glory of Jesus. In the same way, when Jacob looked into the face of Esau, he said, when I look into your face, it's like I'm seeing the face of God. Hey, when people look into our face, do all they see is disdain? Or do they see the face of God? Do they see the graciousness that God gives us? Do they see the blessing of God? Do they see hope? That's what the Holy Spirit does when we go into the presence of the Lord. As we commune with the Lord, we become the face of God to the world. Second, verse number five. What is James saying in verse number five, six, and and seven? James is calling on us to prioritize the poor. He says, look, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? He's prioritizing the poor in their actions. If you're looking for a Bible study, look at all the times Jesus and or how Jesus treated the Samaritans. Just go through the Bible and look. Jesus always presented the Samaritans in a good light. He always took care of the Samaritans. He always either healed them or even when he told stories, painted them in the best light he could. Best light possible. In fact, at one point, the Jews in John 8 called him a Samaritan. He said, you have a Samaritan and a demon. Why would they call him a Samaritan? They called him a Samaritan because they thought he was a closet Samaritan. That's how much he loved the Samaritan people. They thought that he was a closet Samaritan. This guy has to be a Samaritan. No Jew would treat a Samaritan this good because the Jews hated the Samaritans. But Jesus so loved the Samaritans and so fought for their peace, so fought to be in communion with them that they thought he was a closet Samaritan. That's a glorious picture of how we should treat others in our community. Regardless if they agree with us or not, regardless if they look like us or not, or regardless if they have the same amount of money as we have. But notice the last thing, and this to me is the most glorious. In verse 12 and 13, Jesus says this, uh, James says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the liberty, the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Why would Jesus tell them that if we don't show mercy to others, no mercy will be shown unto us? It's because of the imagery in verse number two that for each and every one of us inside here today, we were clothed in filthy rags or shabby clothing. But now we as God's people have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ by the mercy of God. And therefore, as we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, it is our responsibility both in the church and in the community to bring that same righteousness to everyone we see. To spread the love of Christ to everyone we we meet. 
That's our responsibility. And that is how we can avoid the sin of partiality by treating everyone as if they are image bearers of Christ and allowing them to see us as being the face of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your word is powerful and true. And James um, pulls no punches, but Lord, he every at every turn shows grace. May we as your people do the same thing. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Please stand for our life.